Welcome back to the program. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, I thank you and praise you for all of the ways that you love us and take care of us, that you bless us. Lord our God, I ask that you would give us the the spirit of Easter, Holy Spirit of the risen Lord, be alive in us. And let these words of scripture be alive in us as well, Lord. Please encounter us even as you encountered those in the scriptures uh, in the resurrection accounts. Lord, we love you, but we long to love you more. And Lord, in this time of the novena to divine mercy, we ask as well that your mercy would reign and rule over our lives, permeate our relationships, and grant us a, uh, a vision, a horizon of hope beyond uh, our own current understanding. We make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yesterday, I began reflections um, based on the idea that we Catholics don't do a very good job of living Easter. We do a good job of living Lent. We get it. We know the specific things to do. The attitudes of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, extending ourselves towards God in prayer, restraining ourselves towards ourselves in fasting, extending ourselves in love towards others in almsgiving. What about Easter? Easter's longer than Lent. Shouldn't we be able to enter into the spirit of Easter and the spirit of this liturgical season? That's what I'm here to reflect on with you. Yesterday I did it by comparing and contrasting Lent and Easter, and I gave a a variety of ways that um, Lent and Easter are different. And so um, I won't go back through those. Instead, I want to talk about living Easter in the light of the first eight words. It's actually first seven words, but because resurrection is is, uh, about the eighth day, the beginning of the new creation, um, I am going to have uh, an eighth word as well. But you remember the seven last words, right? The seven last words are what? The words that Jesus spoke from the cross, right? I thirst, behold your mother, behold your son, right? Um, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commend my spirit, right? The seven last words of Jesus. And those become very prominent in our tradition as points of reflection, especially on Good Friday, but also in terms of spirituality, just reflecting on the meaning of those seven last words of Jesus. What I've never seen is anyone reflect on the seven first words of Jesus in the resurrection accounts. If you take a look at the resurrection accounts in the four Gospels, you see a variety of encounters where Jesus or angels are speaking, and uh, they are speaking very important messages that are intimately linked to the reality of the resurrection. And, oh, by the way, as we reflect on them, we're going to find that they also are connected to our lives as well. And so how? Well, let's dive into these first seven words. If you read the gospel accounts, the first seven words uh, of the Easter season. The first is, he is not here. He is alive. Why are you weeping? He is not here. He is alive. Why are you weeping? And when you, um, when you hear those, you know, those sentences, those are what? Those are words that come from 
the account of uh, the angels that are meeting the women that come to the tomb, and they come to uh, to uh, uh, prepare Jesus's body uh, for death. It's the angels in the Gospel of John that end up saying to uh, Mary Magdalene, um, why are you weeping? And, and it's in the other Gospels where you'll see uh, th- these, mes- these references to, he's not here, he's alive, as he said, right? He is not here, he is alive. And, and there are all kinds of um, signs of amazement um, over the women. And my, the first word of the first word of Easter is that death does not have the last word. Death does not have the last word. Why do you seek for the living one among the dead? Right? Death doesn't have the last word in our lives, in life here on earth. Why are you weeping? If you read the account of the New Jerusalem, of uh, the, uh, the reality of heaven, in the end of the book of the prophet Isaiah, in the end of the book of Revelation, one of the ways that heaven is described, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven is described, is that there's no more crying, there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more death. All of these things have passed away. Death seems so conclusive and ultimate, that we avoid thinking about it. It seems so final, but it's not. Death is a door. And when we think about the way that, um, we think about the way that death uh, impacts our lives, it's because we think that it's so conclusive and ultimate. There's no getting around it or beyond it. The resurrection says, death doesn't have the last word. And this is true for anything that can seem dead, or that seems dead, or that is dead, if you will, in our lives, in our lives, in our, in our love, in our spiritual life, in our hope, in our faith. Death doesn't have to have the last word. So when you, you might be experiencing in, uh, in your own life, a deadness in your marriage, in your ability to communicate, to forgive, to speak in a way that's uplifting rather than wounding, to um, to get beyond the typical patterns of, of conversation, the typical uh, behaviors that are so deadening. They're not refreshing or life-giving. They're not f- leading to flourishing in, in marriage or in our parenting, in our kids' lives. Maybe we've we've um, lost hope. We've died to a sense of hope that there's a, a better future. Death doesn't have the last word. In this Easter season, I encourage you to please pray, Lord, enter those areas in my life where I am weeping, where I am at a loss, where I feel like there's something that is so conclusive something that has happened that there is no coming back from. There's a tomb, and there's a deadness there, and there's a stone in front of that tomb, and there's no rolling that stone away. 
There are parts of our lives that we don't even bother bringing to God. We avoid thinking about them because we feel like things are so final. They don't have to be. The resurrection says they are not. That all of those places of deadness can be simply doors. That Christ has overcome all deadness. Remember now, the resurrection is a resurrection out of death, out of sin, out of the darkness, the confusion, all of that. Jesus is not here. He's alive. You no longer need to weep. You no longer need to mourn. All of this will pass because of the spirit of the resurrection. No, because of the resurrection and the spirit of Jesus uh, who is risen from the dead, is glorious on high. He has shared that spirit to dwell in our hearts. And so let's embrace that first word of Easter. He's not here. He's alive. Why are we weeping? Let's go to the second of these phrases. The second of these phrases is connected. It, it is also um, from the, those first scenes of the women coming to the tombs. One of the other phrases that comes out that's different uh, than the other ones that just spoke uh, by the angels is the one, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. And this is both f- fear regarding things in this world, but also fear of God and of the world to come. I'm going to let you in on a conversation I had the other day. Uh, let's see. Uh, this was, what's today? Okay, I'm recording this on Tuesday night, Wednesday night. No, Tuesday night. <laughs> and yesterday I got a surprise call from a priest uh, that I've known for 30, over 30 years. And uh, a holy priest of God. Truly holy. He has spoken into my life in very prophetic ways. It just he's a he's a holy priest of God. Just is. And I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years. And uh, just he called me out of the blue. He happened to be coming through Seattle um, on uh, on coming back from a ministry engagement he had. And he said to me. I said, so, you know, how's life been for you? He said, well, it's been quite an interesting two years, meaning related to these COVID shutdowns as a priest that operates here in the United States with all of the restrictions, all of the limitations, all of the ways that the life of the church was shut down. And he said to me, it was shut down in visible ways, but essentially he continued to operate as a priest in his diocese underground for the last two years while restrictions were in place. He would meet with families and say mass and perform sacraments and did so in, in a form of underground church. It was a kind of underground church. Um, and the interesting thing was it was underground to... Uh, to, to many or most at the level of the institutional church, but his own bishop knew he was doing it, for he let him know that this was happening. And, and the insight that he said was this. He had a few insights. The first was his background. He had been a missionary in China during the SARS outbreak in 2002, 2003. He was there, 
And he knows what it is to be a Catholic priest in China to deal with not only oppression from the government, but also a deadly virus. And he acknowledged that, you know, COVID was more deadly in, in, in a number of ways, but that then he learned what it was to operate in an environment that involved dangers from health issues, uh, like a, a spreading virus that's dangerous, while in the context of living under a governmental system that would attempt to shut down his ministry as a priest. But he wouldn't be stopped because he was a priest of Jesus Christ, and he knew that he would face God. He was more afraid of God. He had an authentic, if you will, reverence for God and of his priestly call, and that outweighed the fear of things in this world. He said to me, he said, Tom, he said, really the insight that he felt like was gripping America, living in this context in the last two years, was Hebrews 2, 14. He said, now since, and this is what it says, now since the children are men of blood and flesh, Jesus likewise had a full share in ours, that by his death he might rob the devil, the prince of death, of his power, and free those who through fear of death had been slaves their whole life long. Let me say that again. Jesus likewise had a full share in ours that by his death he might rob the devil, the prince of death, of his power and free those who through fear of death had been slaves their whole life long. He said in his way of seeing things that these last two years had been an exercise in the fear of death. The people were very simply afraid to die. And that dominated the way in which people went about living their lives, including, including, sadly, many of uh, many church leaders. And so he, as a priest of Jesus Christ, Catholic priest, exercised his priestly ministry and the communities that he ministered to grew and flourished, though not visibly and publicly. Grew and flourished. And he didn't have a chance to tell me lots of stories, but um, suffice it to say, do not be afraid. God is big. God is bigger than death. Don't be afraid of death. Don't let the, the fear of death hold you back from living your God-given call, your God-given vocation. God is bigger than that. Don't be afraid. I'm up against a break. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. I'm reflecting on the first seven words of Easter. Isn't that cool? Not the seven last words of Jesus on the cross, but the first seven words. And to be fair, they're not exactly words, but they're sentences, or a sentence or multiple sentences that are circling around these seven themes that are powerful and important for understanding 
the reality of Easter. Understanding the reality of Easter. Let's live Easter well. And so the first one is that the Lord is alive. Why are we weeping? Death it doesn't have the last word. The second one is don't be afraid. Fear doesn't have the last word, not even the fear of death. But let's incorporate an authentic reverence for God and of the world to come. Let's grow and gain an authentic fear of God and of the world to come. God is big. God manifests his uh, infinite, mysterious transcendence over all the, the things of this world by the way that he raised Jesus from the dead and showed Christ victorious over all that would leave people under the realm, under the dominion of the devil, the prince of death. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Fear God more than the things of this world. The third, what's the third word? The third uh, of these seven words or phrases that I'm reflecting on today in Sound Insight is actually just one word. It's the word Mary. And can you remember that? Do you remember when that happened? Like where in the gospel accounts of the resurrection was the word Mary spoken? You probably remember it was the in the account where she goes to the tomb, she enters the tomb. Oh, sorry, this is Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John. And she's entering the tomb and she sees that the body of Jesus is gone. And she sees two angels, one at the head and one at the feet of where uh, of the of the slab of stone on which Jesus laid. And um, as she leaves the tomb, uh, she encounters someone that she thinks is the gardener. And it was Jesus. So there was a way in which she was prevented from understanding or recognizing that it was Jesus. And until Jesus spoke her name. Uh, remember, what does he say? She says, uh, if you've taken, taken his body, show me where you've, we've lain him. And, and Jesus says, Mary. And this is a really beautiful and powerful thing because in the Easter season, God gets more personal. God gets more personal, right? In the first one, God is showing us to be the God of life over death. In the second, God shows us that he wants to get bigger. He wants to get bigger in your, in your own spiritual life. To have an authentic reverence of God. God's bigger. And this third one, God gets more personal. You see, we can feel lost, cut off, isolated, feel abandoned, we can feel lost and cut off from Jesus as if Jesus does not have the last word. We feel abandonment. And what we're invited to do in the Easter season is to move from feeling abandonment, lost, cut off, isolated, to making an act of abandonment. Jesus, I trust in you. That act of abandonment connected to the Divine Mercy Chaplet. I mentioned that it's the time of the novena to Divine Mercy. You can still do it, still jump in, 
right? It, it continues on until Sunday. It began on Good Friday. So it's not too late. Uh, it's a very short novena. And then you could just pray Divine Mercy Chaplet. But one of the beautiful phrases that is most associated, the phrase most associated with the Divine Mercy Chaplet is, Jesus, I trust in you. And that's an act of abandonment. I entrust myself to you. I place myself into your hands. In the Easter season, the Lord wants to become more personal. He wants to become more intimate. He wants to come closer to you. Not only does he want to become bigger, but he wants to get more personal. He wants to speak your name to you in prayer. I encourage you to do that. In your prayer time, in the Lenten season, take some time and and just really just say this. Jesus, please, in this time of prayer, just speak my name. Speak my name, Jesus. And in, in, in doing that, what will you what will you come to know? You make that request. Something's going to happen. Okay, did you hear that? You, you make that request to the Lord. Lord Jesus, please, in this time of prayer, I beg you to give me the grace to be open to hear you speak my name. And I ask, I seek, I knock on the door of your heart. Please speak my name, Jesus. Speak my name. And when you start praying like that, when you start asking the Lord, petitioning for that sense of intimacy, you will come to know. There'll be a kind of knowing, a solid sense of confidence, a kind of certainty that says, I'm known. I'm known. That'll grow in you. It'll grow in you that you personally, the person that you are, is known if you start praying that prayer. Why? In a spiritual way, in a way that the Lord will assign and the Lord has designed for you, he will speak your name. I'm not saying you're going to hear a voice in your ears. I am saying he's going to communicate to you that reality that he knows your name, he sees you, and he does speak to you. He communicates to you. And in communicating to you, he's reaching out to you. And he's going to draw you into his heart. He's going to draw you into intimacy, into nearness, into a sense of union with him. Mary. The Easter season is about letting God get more personal. Are you willing to do that? A simple act of abandonment is enough to overcome barriers of darkness and sorrow, of doubt, of desperation. That simple act of Jesus, I trust in you. And do you know how much easier it is to entrust yourself to the Lord? When you have that confident sense, when you have that, 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 that solid sense of reality that when I'm abandoning myself, I'm placing myself into Jesus' hands. I'm placing myself into the hands of the one who sees me, sees what I'm doing. He's acknowledging it. He, he actually initiated it. He's prompting it. He called me by name and he's inviting me into it. Do you know how powerful that becomes? Jesus, I trust in you. Wait and see. Enter into that this Easter season.
the fourth sentence. Today I'm going through seven, the seven first words of the resurrection, the seven first words of the Easter season. Instead of focusing on the seven last words that Jesus spoke on the cross, we're looking at the seven first sentences, the seven first words spoken in the Gospels after the resurrection. The fourth one. The fourth is, what are you discussing as you go your way? What are you discussing as you go your way? So where does that come from? What are you discussing as you go your way? Think about it. It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and it's, the, it's Easter Sunday, and it is the road to Emmaus. So on the road to Emmaus, what do we have? We have two disciples of Jesus, Cleopas is one, and the other's not known. And, you know, they are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven miles away. And what's and Jesus approaches them, right? And he just says, what are you discussing as you go your way? And they are arguing. They're having an animated conversation. Uh, and so much so that Jesus approaches them, starts engaging in conversation with them, and they don't even realize that it's Jesus. And so Jesus enters into the midst of a relationship marked by conflict. He enters into a broken relationship. He enters into the middle of an argument. And that's the fourth word of Easter, that conflict and broken relationships do not have the last word. Conflict and broken relationships do not have the last word. And this opens up another beautiful and powerful Easter opportunity. What's the Easter season about? It's about you bringing your broken relationships, bringing those places of conflict that live inside of you and realizing that Jesus in the Easter season, he's approaching me. He's approaching me not at those places where I am praying um, in, uh, in a prayer meeting with a bunch of other people um, with hallelujahs and smiles. It's not when he's approaching me just when I'm at Mass with other believers or when I'm having a family prayer time and everyone's actively engaged. No. Do you know what he's approaching? He's approaching me in the Easter season in those places of brokenness and conflict. Do you have any broken, conflictual situations in your life? Any relationships with your kids or grandkids you're struggling with? How about with your boss? How about inside yourself? These relationships invite Jesus to come. Welcome him. Ask him to come. Ask him to enter right into the middle of those broken circumstances and watch what he will do. Remember now, what's one of the signs that you're in a broken relationship? You don't recognize that Jesus is drawn close. He's there. And, and so that's one of those things that you might stop and say, where's a relationship where it just doesn't feel like Jesus is present at all? There's no sign or indication that Jesus is here. That's a sign that there's a relationship that Jesus has marked down for a visitation. He's going to come and visit. What's the second thing? Well, if you look at the content of Luke 24, where Jesus 
on the road to Emmaus, um, approaches and, and, and talks with Cleopas and the other disciple. Um, he, he says, what are you discussing? And what do they say? They say, well, don't you know? Are you the only one in, in, in Jerusalem that doesn't realize what's been happening, that Jesus is a prophet in word and deed? And, uh, he, he, was, he suffered, uh, and then he was crucified, and he died and was buried, and, and now there's a report that he's risen from the dead. And what are they doing? Well, they're actually proclaiming the gospel. <laughs> they're proclaiming the good news that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and yet they're proclaiming it as if it's bad news. So they've lost sight of the truth of the gospel to bring power and light to their situation. And so I, I bring this back to you and say, what, what's, what are these first words of Easter guiding us to do? It's to help us to recover the fact that we may be in broken relationships and in conflict with people who are of our own faith, of our own household of faith, of our own household. And and you know what the Lord is saying? Look, you're speaking good news as if it's bad news. I'm going to flip that entire thing around. I'm going to reverse that whole thing. And this then brings me to the next aspect of what are you discussing as you go your way. Jesus starts to re- help them recover the truth of the good news as Jesus begins to interpret the scriptures for them and makes alive the word of God as a place where new light shines into their relationship. And then as they reach Emmaus, what does Jesus do? He acts as if he is going further. He acts as if he's going further. And they invite him to come in. So there's a moment of invitation. And then what happens? Well, he takes bread, and in the breaking of the bread, there's the, uh, the scales fall from the eyes, and they come to realize it's Jesus. And then he disappears. And then these d- disciples who were in uh, such disarray, in conflict, in a broken relationship, they run together back to Jerusalem. A seven-mile journey, so excited, at night, dangerous, they make the journey back. And you look at the power that comes from the resurrection of Jesus, the power of the Easter season in our life of faith is one that we will experience when we realize that when we face broken relationships, we bring them to the Lord. We can follow the trail. We can ask that the Lord would make his word come alive for us. Read the scriptures. Take time to read the scriptures in the Easter season as the Lord Jesus himself, the risen Lord, will begin to teach you and help you see with new eyes. And then go to Mass. Go to adoration. Go to that place where the scales can fall from your eyes. And that will bring unity and reconciliation, union and communion in those places that right now are broken. Believe that. Let that be an Easter journey that the Lord wants to take with you. And remember, he can act like he's going by. And so it's going to be our decision. Let's not just let the Lord walk by. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. I got into my 
uh, conversation too much there. I <laughs> went right up against that break. Uh, today on Sound Inside, I'm uh, reflecting on the seven first words of not just Jesus, but seven first words and sentences in the Gospels connected to the resurrection. And I'm doing this precisely to provide some guidance, some insight into what you might do to live the Easter season. We get so many talks, homilies, books, programs, ideas for living a good Lent, but almost nothing on how to live a good Easter. And so I'm drawing from the scriptures insights and spiritual practices, things that you can focus on, things that you can make a practice during your Easter season, and doing so in the light of what the scriptures tell us occurred in those early days on Easter Sunday itself, and then in the days that followed. And so I'm just drawing out the first seven, and I've got an eighth, but the first seven sentences that are connected to the time of Easter. So I've gotten through four of them so far. Believe it or not, he is not here, he's alive. Why are you weeping? Death does not have the last word. Christ is risen from the dead. The second was, do not be afraid. In, in the Easter season, God wants to get bigger. Fear doesn't have the last word, especially the fear of death or the fear of the things of this world. But pray that God will get bigger. God, God's bigness will become more manifest in your life. And we'll, we'll have an authentic reverence for God and for the world to come. The third is Mary. And that's where God gets more personal. There's a greater intimacy the Lord wants to have in your life and is inviting you to trust in him. The fourth is what are you discussing as you go your way, and boy, there's so much in that, that conflict and broken relationships do not have the last word, and how the Lord in the Easter season can enter into those broken relationships, and he can restore communion by coming into the center of them. And we can come to see him at work in those relationships. So pray for that. The fifth. The fifth is peace be with you. Peace be with you. By the way, we're still uh, on Easter Sunday. Peace be with you. Um, and where did that come from? Well, that's from the Gospel of John. And um, it actually involves two Sundays. It involves Easter Sunday and then the Sunday after, the, the following Sunday. And it's the second one of those that I'm going to um, focus on more. And it's what Jesus says when he comes through the locked doors. Remember now, you have the apostles and disciples in the upper room, and the door was locked for fear of the Jews. And Jesus comes through the locked door, and it says that he said, peace be with you. And they were terrified. They were terrified. And so then he showed them his wounds. He showed them his wounds and spoke again, peace be with you. Now, this encounter that Jesus has with the apostles is one that's very poignant and powerful in uh, my life and in my life with Kerry, um, with uh, my wife. 
because this scripture ended up being a powerful means of ministering from the Lord to our lives in a a time when we were suffering greatly. Um, And that time was early in our marriage, after about five just over five, five to six, five and a half years married, Carrie and I gave birth to Carrie gave birth to our oldest daughter, Mary Grace, and then, and that was after a number of years of infertility, um, and one miscarriage, and then we gave birth. Uh, we had given the gift of Mary Grace, and then a string of miscarriages started to happen in our married life, and that became a tremendous source of pain and suffering where we who had so longed to conceive and for years were unable to conceive, finally conceived and lost our first child to miscarriage, conceived again and then gave birth to Mary Grace. And then when Carrie became pregnant again, we had this sense of expectant faith, this sense of hope that, you know what, maybe the miscarriage is going to be a a reality from into the past and we can look forward to another birth. And then when we had a miscarriage followed by another and another, and I could go on, but there are more children in heaven than on earth. We have more children in heaven than on earth that we've lost through miscarriage. And there was a tremendous suffering there. And one of the effects of the suffering was that we wanted to close the door to that part of our lives when it came to bringing it to God. It's not that we didn't have faith in God. It's not that we didn't uh, love the Lord and weren't trying to serve the Lord. But it was so hard to become pregnant, to get pregnant, and then have this sense of hope, have this sense of this time we're, we're going to uh, be able to remain pregnant and have a child, and then to lose that child through miscarriage. It was such a tremendous suffering. And to have it repeated and repeated, it was like, and I can remember Carrie saying, if that's how God's going to treat us in this part of our life, I'd rather not bring it to him. If this is how God is going to treat us in this part of our life, I would rather not bring it to him because of the suffering. It was so hard to turn to God, pray to God, ask the Lord to hear the prayers. Not this time, Lord, please let this baby live. Please, Lord. And then to lose that child, it was so hard. But suffering doesn't have to have the last word. Peace be with you is a powerful sentence that Christ speaks to all of you, all of us, who are suffering. How? How is peace be with you in this whole scene ministering to us? Well, the first thing, remember now, after he said peace be with you, is he said he showed them his wounds. He showed them his wounds. You see, he knew that when you're in a place of suffering, words words don't mean a lot. Words don't help a lot. But when he showed them his wounds, he's saying, I, I, I understand your suffering. I know what you've undergone. And in the mystery 
of Christ's redemption, there's a way in which in the Easter season, he will show you his wounds, you who are suffering. And in showing you his wounds, he's going to communicate to you the fact that you are not alone in your suffering, and your suffering is not unknown to him. He is with you and has suffered through what you're suffering. He is suffering with you in your suffering. And what he is speaking is peace. Peace means what? The tranquility of things being in order. Tranquilitas ordinis, uh, said St. Augustine. The, the serenity that comes to a life when things are in order. Jesus Christ will come through a locked door. Those places in your life that have locked off because of suffering. He wants to enter in. He wants to say, I'm going to bring order and serenity, tranquility and calmness. I'm going to bring peace into this place of throbbing suffering in your life because I've suffered through it all. I've suffered through it all. I've suffered with you in it all. And then what did he say to the apostles when he entered the upper room? He breathed on them the Holy Spirit and said, whose sins you forgive are forgiven. Breathing on them the Holy Spirit is an act of empowerment. And then they ran out the door. They weren't stuck anymore in the door. So Christ has not only peace, not only does he have compassion, but he has power. Power to say, you no longer have to live behind this locked door. You will now want to go forth from this door because of his power at work in your life. And so I, I say that to you, that in the face of suffering, silent suffering, love alone is sufficient. And the Lord wants to lavish his love upon you. He will seep through those locked doors. He will minister to you. And you will come to know that he has suffered through and now he will bring power into those places of suffering. He will establish order and peace so that you can stand up and go out and those doors in your life don't have to be locked anymore. That's what Easter can be all about. Let Easter be about that. Invite the Lord to speak those words, peace be with you, in places of your suffering. Invite the Lord to come through those places of locked doors in your life. You won't be able to do it. You won't be able to open those doors, but he can pass through those doors and he'll give you the power to exit them yourself. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. Today, I am reflecting on the seven first words of Easter. And again, if you've heard me in the program, it's not just words, it's sentences. It's drawn from the different scriptural accounts of the uh, resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're still in this time of uh, the, um, the, the, um, these, these days of, of Easter that go from Easter Sunday all the way through to the following Sunday. Uh, and in, in these days, it's as if we're still in the overflow of the reality of the Easter season. And so it's a great time to stop and reflect and say, um, what am I doing to live Easter well? What am I going to do to live Easter well? Well, let's come to the sixth sentence. And the sixth sentence is, do not persist in your unbelief, but believe. Believe. 
Do not persist in your unbelief, but believe. Okay, where does that come from? Um, where does Jesus, in, in the context of something so beautiful and powerful as the resurrection, say these words, do not persist in your unbelief, but believe? It's to Thomas, the apostle, remember? The apostle who missed Jesus the previous Sunday, coming through the locked doors, showing his wounds and all of that. And so now we have a week later, Thomas is there, is there and Jesus appears again, and he reaches out to Thomas. And says, Thomas, come and take your fingers and probe my hands. Take your hand and probe my side and realize that it, it is really I. It is really Jesus, risen from the dead. Do not persist in your unbelief, but believe. And it's the famous response that, Jesus, that Thomas makes to Jesus, my Lord and my God my Lord and my God. And that's really the high point of the whole gospel of John. The high point of the gospel of John is it culminates in that profession of faith. If you take a look at uh, John chapter 1, it in some ways summarizes the remainder of what's going to happen in chapters 2 through 20. Uh through two through the uh, through twenty one through the end of the Gospel of John, that at the end of John chapter one you have the profession that Jesus is the Son of God, and then from chapter two you have the um, the wedding feast at Cana, and then going all the way through the different signs, and then the ministry of Jesus, and then his crucifixion, and now he's risen from the dead, and now we have at the end of chapter twenty um, Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, and professing that Jesus Christ is God. So in one way, at one level, one, one, acti- one, some, one thing that's happening in the gospel is it's unfolding what was already done in one chapter through the, through the next 19. It's making the case, it's giving the witness, the testimony, that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my God. So hard-heartedness does not have to have the last word. Hard-heartedness does not have to have the last word. What does this mean for your Easter activity? Pray for those you love who have hardened their hearts, who no longer believe. Pray that they would not persist in their unbelief, but believe. I remember uh, there's a story I, I love to tell about this. When I had my awakening of faith, I was 18, the summer after my freshman year in college, and my two best friends thought I was crazy, that it was just a fad, that this was going to pass. And one of them was uh, my dear friend, Mark, my best friend, uh, Mark. And uh, Mark was a non-practicing Catholic uh, had a very scientific cast of mind, very, very smart guy, and also very moral, a very a good a good man. Did not do immoral things. Uh, in fact, in many ways, was more ethical, more upright in the way he lived his life than I was living mine. And so, it, 
when I had this awakening of faith and I was all about Jesus, he had this conviction that there was no God. And unfortunately, I could not match him um, scientifically to make the case. And um, he didn't have faith. He didn't. Ha- he, he had this hard-heartedness. Um, but he, it wasn't that he was living a morally depraved life. He was a tough nut to crack. <laughs> All my best arguments were not working. So I began to pray for him. And I asked St. Thomas, the apostle, to pray for him. And I continued to pray every single day for him to receive the gift of faith, that he would receive the gift of faith. And then I remember the day when he came and and said to me that he now believed that there was a God and that, um, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he was going to start practicing his faith again. And boy, did he come alive with a zealous faith. Um, and it was a beautiful gift to have him not only as my best friend, but as a uh, uh, someone, a zealous young man on fire for the Lord as a Catholic. And he ended up, um, I ended up attending the seminary. He ended up following, uh, he ended up doing the same thing a couple years later and is now a Discalced Carmelite. Uh, it's Father Mark DeVellis. He's actually come out to Western Washington um, one time and was a part of the Gift of Faith conference, talked about healing and miracles. Oh my goodness, miracles that came from his time of praying with people. Anyways, he tells the story. Eventually, he told me that um, what happened was uh, what made him turn the corner was that he fell asleep one night and had this encounter with Jesus where Jesus appeared to him as king and basically said, I am God. <laughs> I'm God. I'm God in your life. You're not God. And, and I do exist and come and follow me. And that did it. Uh, it was kind of hard for him to persist in unbelief. He said he could not unbelieve. He could not persist in unbelief any longer. So pray for that. Pray for an encounter with Jesus. He had his own coming into the upper room uh, saying, you know, don't persist in your unbelief, but belief. Pray for that. Pray for, um, you know, an extraordinary encounter with Jesus, a supernatural encounter with Jesus to be revealed in the lives of those you love who persist in unbelief, that they would believe. All right, the seventh sentence, and I only have a couple minutes for this last one, is, um, do you love me more than these? And you know where that's from. Do you love me more than these? That's Jesus three times uh, questioned Peter, right, after the resurrection. And that's because denial does not have the last word. Denial does not have the last word. When we think about denying Jesus, that can become a very powerful way of understanding the nature of sin. That sin is betrayal. Sin is denial of a relationship it, we always think, we, we tend to think of sin as breaking of God's law, breaking of a commandment. And it's true, but you've heard me say it how many times, that even more than sin is a breaking of God's law, even though it's that, it's breaking of a heart. It's, it's, it's a betrayal. It's a, it's a betrayal of love. It's a failure to, to live in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to overcome. 
in the Easter season. We want to realize that Jesus draws close to us in those places where we do deny him, where we have denied him, where we have betrayed him, and he's inviting us to love. He's inviting us to love and to follow, just like he did with Peter. And so in this Easter season, invite the Lord to come close to you, precisely in those places in your life where you have denied him, where you have betrayed him, where you have fallen short. Even though maybe like Peter, you vowed to die with Jesus rather than ever deny him. I would die for you. Tonight you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. And so let's realize, Jesus knows it, that denial does not have to have the last word. And if we enter into the, into the Easter season, it won't have the last word. And so I especially encourage those of you that have a, um, a particularly shameful sin from your past that you still labor with, you carry it in your memory, and you feel like the Lord could never forgive me. The Lord, it's like I can never get over this. No, let the Lord help you get over it. Maybe bring those particular places in your life where you have a heinous, shameful thing that you've done that you really want the Lord to help wash away and help you realize that denial does not have the last word. Jesus Christ has the last word. Thanks so much for being with me today. Join me tomorrow for more Sun Insight. God bless your day. And and believe these seven words. Don't doubt them. Don't doubt, oh, by the way, there was the eighth word, go and proclaim the gospel. <laughs> so that was sort of at the end of Jesus' time before he ascended. So God bless your day.